Open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2, and we will be studying uh, verses 1 through 10 this morning. If you're visiting this morning, I want to introduce myself. My name is David Morris. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, we're, we're grateful to have you with us this morning. Uh, I also want to kind of catch everybody up with where we are. Last week, we started a five-week series in the book of Jonah. Uh, we have a habit here of wanting to teach the full counsel of God, so we typically will bounce from Old Testament to New Testament books, uh, working verse by verse uh, as we go through them. And so we had just finished a New Testament book, uh, the, the letter to the church in Philippi. Now we are in Jonah, uh, and we'll be here for about a month now. As we continue this week, I want to share with you an experience I had that's relevant to where we are this morning. And before I do that, um, I want to be, be clear. So I, I was actually talking about this with Natalie. Like, I don't want to be that guy who gets to stand in front of everybody and talk, only share, like, the negative things about our kids. So, unfortunately, there are times where Malachi misbehaves. So that happened this week, and so I'm going to share that, but I do want you to know like, he's a loving kid, he's a sweet kid, he's smart, he does misbehave sometimes, like all kids, and adults for that matter. So this week, that happened, and uh, there, it was Monday, uh, Natalie and I, I, Blake, I know you don't like the sound when it messes up, so I'm going to go ahead, can, can, like, I feel like an echo or something behind me. Thank you. Um. So Natalie and I had a doctor's appointment in Baton Rouge, and it required us to leave Sulphur at 5.30 in the morning, drive to Baton Rouge, make sure we were there for 8, only to return home at 11. Like, we left there at 11, got back at like 2.30. So you can imagine, I was very tired by the time we got back home. And we actually, it was the first time in a long time, I think Natalie and I took a nap. Uh, I had already scheduled the whole day off, so we got home and both of us just crashed. And so I go to pick up Malachi from daycare, and as I walk into the room, remember, I'm, I'm tired. I walk into the room, and this is the scene. I, we've got this whole group of kids on this side of the room, and they're watching a movie. There's about 15, 20 yards of empty space, teachers in the back, and Malachi sitting on the floor right next to him. Now, I was a good kid uh, in school, like the teacher's pet kind of kid. Surprise, surprise, for some of you. Uh, but that's who I was. But I know that the kids that sat next to the teacher, it wasn't for good reasons. And so I, I walk in, and I see him sitting there, and I just stop in the doorway, and I just stare at him. And he does not look at me. And I just stand there. And every once in a while, he'll like take a look, and sees I'm still looking at him, and he'll look away. The teacher sees me. The teacher says, she, she knows now that I know. So she's like, well, today, and I'm, look, I'm not going to sell my man out completely, so I'm going to spare you the details. But he did X, and he did this, and all these things. And I said, okay. And I'm, I mean, I'm locked in on him. I walk up to the teacher, the little uh, table that they were at, do the things I need to do to check him out, and I'm still laser-focused. I want him to look me in the eyes, but he won't do it. So we get his stuff, we walk down the hallway, and it's a pretty long hallway, it's about the size of this middle section of our, our room here, but for him it had to feel a lot longer. Because the whole way down, I'm asking him, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? What would have been the better way to handle the situation? And the dude does not look at me, he won't answer me with words, he shrugs his shoulders every question. So we get in the car, and remember, I'm tired. So honestly, I, I didn't even want to talk about it. <laughs> I just didn't want to deal with it. But also, I didn't want to say anything that would not be helpful in that situation because I was pretty aggravated with him. And so I just was silent the whole way home. And I also had the thought, man, this is one of those cool parent moments I've never had before. I can just let him think about how bad it's going to be when he gets home, like what his discipline will be like, and I'm going to let his imagination go crazy. So we get home, five-minute drive. We walk in the door. I just say, go up to your bedroom. Wait for Miss Natalie to get home. We'll, uh, we'll figure it out then. 
About 30 to 45 seconds after he got up there, I remembered he had stuffed animals on his bed, and I didn't want him to play with anything. So I go upstairs, I open his door, and I find him covered up in a blanket, like fully covered up, hiding. And I don't know if he was like that when he went upstairs, but for sure, if he wasn't, he probably did it as he heard my footsteps going up. He was hiding underneath the blanket. I take off all the animals. I throw them across the room. And then he finally broke the silence. He told me what he did, why he did what he did, and how he knew that he should not do that anymore. That's where we are this morning in Jonah chapter 2. What we see is Jonah doing the complete opposite of what God asked him, told him to do. To the point where, as Blake shared with us last week, he never spoke, right? Like God, the Lord comes to him and says, hey, go do this. And Jonah doesn't say a word back, he just bolts. Typically, what, as Blake mentioned last week, what we see in, in, with the prophets is when God brings them a word, sometimes they'll negotiate with him, sometimes they'll even debate with him, but not Jonah. Jonah, instead, goes silent. And this morning, he's going to break that silence. It'll be pretty neat for us to see that. Blake walked us through the first chapter last week and pointed out some key things that we need to remember over the next few weeks as we study this book. First and foremost, the book of Jonah is not about Jonah. And it's not about the great fish. I was discussing with some of our students this morning, and of course, it's that question we all wonder, what kind of fish was this? What kind of fish? I've heard whale, right? That's typical. And then there's like, okay, well, what kind of whale? Megalodon? was one that was brought up this morning. Uh, I think a giant dolphin was also mentioned at some point. Just different ideas for what this fish could be. But it's important that we don't focus on the fish. The fish is just like, the fish has a cameo in this story. The fish shows up and the fish leaves, and it's not about the fish. It's also not about Jonah. And to be honest with you, it's not about Nineveh either. This is a story about God's pursuit of man so that he can display his mercy. That's the focus of this book. So today, as we study in depth this prayer of Jonah from the belly of the fish, there are going to be some implications that we'll be able to draw, that are going to be pretty easy for us to see as we look at Jonah. But first, we need to look at what this prayer communicates about who God is. Because if we don't do that, There are going to be shallow, surface-level applications that we will leave here with. But when we understand what led Jonah to respond the way he did, primarily looking at the character of God, if we can wrap our minds around that, then those implications for us will be deeply rooted in our souls, and they will transform us. My mentor in the ministry of the church always said, Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. That's an expensive way of saying right thinking leads to right practice, not the other way around. So this morning, as we go through our our passage, our text here, we're going to be looking at what does this say about who God is? And then we'll transition and say, okay, how how does that affect us? That's the first point that Blake mentioned last week. The second thing is that the book of Jonah points us to Jesus. Jesus himself. We read this last week, and I want to read it again this week in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus himself references this historical narrative. In Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, 
something greater than Jonah is here. This was written to point us to Jesus. He's the greater Jonah. Jonah is not a hero, as we've seen in chapter 1 already. And as we will continue to see over the next few weeks, but he is an imperfect sign pointing to Jesus Christ. Lastly, before we become too judgmental and condescending towards possibly the worst missionary ever, one thing Blake reminded us last week is that we have much, too much in common with Jonah. See, we're not the heroes in the story either. We're like Jonah. We're like Nineveh, that pagan city that is lost and desperate in their state. And God is going to pursue Jonah. He's going to pursue Jonah, and through Jonah, he's going to pursue Nineveh. That's where we are in this story. So to catch us up quickly on where we are, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. These words specifically, Arise, go east to Nineveh, and call them to repentance. Jonah goes down to Joppa and goes west to Tarshish, the complete opposite of what God told him to do. And he did so so that he could flee from the presence of God. And as we talked about last week, it's not like Jonah really thought he could run away from the omnipresent God, but he did not want to acknowledge that presence. He didn't want to feel that presence. And so he did the complete opposite from what he had told him to do. And we saw two things that are important to remember, especially as we get into our passage this morning. Jonah doesn't speak, as we've already discussed. So he just runs away. He tries to outrun the presence of God. And we saw something else. Man can't outrun the presence of God. Can't do it. God, in his merciful pursuit, brings a great storm Professional sailors are freaking out, calling out to every God that they know about. Jonah continues to hide from the presence of God by sleeping it off, acting as though nothing's going on at the bottom of the ship. The captain comes down and says, hey, whatever God you worship, will you cry out to him because we're about to go under. And Jonah does not break the silence there. He is so much so avoiding the presence of God that he says, you know what, no, I'm not going to do that. Instead, throw me overboard. I would rather die than actually face this fact that I have been disobedient to God. I don't want to deal with that. And then when we see in Jonah 1.17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We were talking about this in our family group last week. At the very end of chapter 1, you see these pagan guys that are just characters in the story. These guys on the ship, they become God-fearers as a result of this. Because when they throw Jonah over, the storm stops. And they recognize Yahweh as the one true God who is in control of the seas. And they, it says that they were God-fearers. They feared God now. What Jonah meant for evil, God took that and said, No, I'm going to redeem that. I'm going to use that for good. That catches us up where we are this morning. As we get in Jonah 2, we have this prayer that Jonah prays out to God from the belly of the fish. And as he does so, he's going to give an account for what was going on prior to him being swallowed. Prior to 117. It's pretty neat because we get a personal insight into what was going on as Jonah was sinking down into the sea. And as we do that, Let's search these words to see what it says about who God is. Let's read Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. 
Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we search your word this morning, will you reveal yourself to us? Father, will you do so in a way that would transform our hearts? Father, for some, will you call them back to yourself? For others, will you remind them of who you are? so they may remember you and call out to you in their distress. Sanctify your church this morning, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we go through this, I'm going to point out some things about what this says about who God is. For those of you who take notes, I'll repeat these points because they're not like a simple outline, like ABC type stuff. But in verses 1 and 2, we see this. God will not abandon his children in distress. God will not abandon his children in distress. Verses 1 and 2, we see, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. What we find out is that prior to Jonah being swallowed by a great fish, he broke the silence. He cried out to the Lord. Up until this point, he has gone to the extent of being thrown overboard so that he would not talk to God. He's like six-year-old Malachi who will not look him in the eyes. He does not want to deal with that because he knows if he does, some things are going to be revealed about his heart and he doesn't want to deal with that. So he says, In my distress, out of the belly of Sheol, he is facing death. And he cries out to God. And look what it says about God. It says, he heard his voice and he answered him. Church, God is a good father. And he will not abandon his children in distress no matter the depth of the sin. Jonah did everything he could to get away from God, deliberately being disobedient. But God still answered him when he called out to him. Twice recently, I've been around to see one of our members, Joshua Blunt, give me a very tangible expression of this characteristic of God. Once we were, it was Independence Day, and we had gone to uh, Mr. Mike's camp Brought the boys. The boys were all having fun playing in the water. We had a paddle boat, kayak, uh, and there was this inner tube. And the inner tube was tied to the dock and had some netting underneath it. And at one point, uh, for those of you who don't know Josh, Josh is the one who read for us this morning. Uh, he's got three kids. You're guaranteed to see two of the boys every Sunday morning running around the room with their crew. Their words, not mine. Uh, running around with their crew. And then you'll see sweet Elliot probably in somebody's arms uh, for now. <laughs> uh, and so we were hanging out with them, and, and Jude, their oldest, somehow got his foot caught up in the netting, and he started freaking out. I mean, the, I mean it's in water, and so he, he panicked. And it's interesting because we were, the Harrises were there, and we were just chilling, sitting back at a table. We hear him crying, but Josh is out there, and And Josh immediately, within seconds, slipping and falling along the way, gets into the water and saves his son from the predicament he was in. A couple weeks later, 
Clark, their middle son, we were at Deontay's birthday party. It was a pool party, and some of you were there, and you may remember this. Uh, Clark was walking a little bit too closely to the pool, wasn't really paying attention, and he fell in. Now, Clark had his, what do you call the puddle jumper things, whatever they're called. He was wearing one, so he was going to be fine, but it freaked him out, understandably so. For that little kid, I mean, that was the end. Like, this is it. And so he started screaming. And apparently, I don't know if Josh has had to do this more than once, but he had the presence of mind to, like, empty his pockets before he jumped in the water. But it was like this, this picture. I mean, I'm sitting there watching it, and Clark falls, Clark screams, Josh pockets, Josh water. But it was just like that, and Josh got in there, soaking wet with clothes that I'm pretty sure he didn't have a plan to get wet when he got there. That's what a good father does. A good father doesn't sit back and like, up, oh, you'll figure it out. But a good father jumps in and goes in and saves. A good father will not ignore the cry of distress, but will answer the cry of distress. And that's what we see here with God. He does not abandon his children. He does not simply hear our voices crying out for him and decide that he's not going to respond this time. He's going to let you figure it out. When we get to that point where we finally cry out to him in distress, he answers. Let's not forget why Jonah was in this situation. He wasn't innocent. He was running from God. He was guilty of disobedience. Some of us are in trouble right now because of our disobedience. This story should encourage you. Stop running from God. Stop avoiding him. Learn from Jonah. You can't outrun his presence. Don't let it get to the point where you're nearing your end before you cry out to our merciful Father. Break the silence. Don't live in the shame and in the guilt. And know that he will answer you and he will extend you Grace upon grace. And He will give you mercies that are new every single morning. And He will not abandon you. Jonah's desire was to flee from the presence of God. In his commentary on Jonah, Sinclair Ferguson stated this, Restoration to fellowship with God must begin in the very areas where rebellion formerly existed. You see, Jonah had to go back to where his disobedience started. He had to go back, return to the felt presence of God. He could not disregard him any longer. If you've been running from God like Jonah did, denying his presence, whatever your disobedience looks like, cry out to him. Call out to him and he will answer. It it won't be painless but it will save you much more pain in the future. So God does not abandon his children in distress. In verses 3 and 4, we see that God sovereignly pursues his children to display his mercy. God sovereignly pursues his children to display his mercy. Starting in verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. In verse 3, notice how Jonah says that God cast him into the deep. Not the sailors, not the crew on the ship. He recognizes that God is sovereign in these circumstances he found himself in. These are words that are not coming from the educated and trained theologian, but from the awakened sinner who realized that what was happening to him was happening at the hand of the Lord. He recognized that though he attempted to flee from his presence, God pursued him. Unfortunately for Jonah, he didn't listen to the storm because that was coming from God as well. 
he didn't listen to the captain who, when he came down, said the exact same words that God had said in chapter 1, verse 1. The captain goes down and says, Arise, call out to your God. The very beginning, God's call for Jonah was, Arise, go to Nineveh and call out against them. He ignored that too. Unfortunately for Jonah, it ended up with him being cast into the sea by God. Out of his mercy, God did that. And he did so to wake him up. And notice the chaos described by Jonah. The flood is surrounding him. God's waves and God's billows are crashing down upon him. And as they do each time, he's sinking deeper and deeper into the sea. And I don't know if you've ever like almost drowned, but I did. I was a little kid in a pool. I'm not, we're not talking about waves that are coming from a storm like this. And my foot slipped on like going to the deep end. Didn't know how to swim yet. I'm freaking out. Like, I'm, I'm just like, every time I try to come up, like, my foot keeps sliding further and further down. Like, the, I'm going further and further down. And all it took was one little girl, she, I, I remember, she pulled me up by a piece of hair and just pulled me up out of the water. But for me, I kept going further and further down, and everything seemed chaotic in that moment. And it's worse for Jonah These waves are crashing down on him, pushing him deeper. He probably doesn't know which way is up and which way is down when that happens. And he recognizes here that God is sovereign over the chaos as well. That this is the Lord's hand upon him, mercifully pursuing him. And despite how fearful this situation was, the worst part is described in verse 4 when he says, I am driven away from your sight. He was driven away from his presence. Jonah realized that God had sovereignly given him a taste of what he wanted. Right? That's why he left. It was to flee his presence. And now, as he's sinking down into the sea, Jonah says, I am cast away from your sight. Quite frankly, this is what hell is like. To be outside of the favor of God. And to only experience the just punishment that we deserve. To be in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God and feel the full weight and burden of our sin. In this chaotic moment, Jonah's life was a true living hell. But God was sovereign over this. He was in control. Church, if we continue to live in unrepentant sin and disobedience, we end up like Jonah. God will turn us over to our earthly desires and allow Satan to have his way with us. Tear us apart until we get to this moment of desperation and distress so that we will cry out to him. If that's where we want to go, this is where we're going to end up. And we will go through the consequential pain and suffering so that he might do to us what he did to Jonah in the sea and wake us up, call us back to himself. And when he does this, it isn't as if his hands are completely off of us. Actually, his hands of care are actively doing those things because he is extending mercy to us. This is love. I want to make sure something bigger than just Jonah's situation is understood. The point here is that God's, is not that God sovereignly disciplines his children to display his mercy, but that God sovereignly pursues his children to display his mercy. I want to say that because sometimes God's pursuit of us may come in the form of discipline when we are disobedient. But not all suffering is a direct consequence of a specific sin. Suffering is a result of sin in general in our hearts because what that is, is we are being, we're allowed to share in the suffering and the afflictions of Christ so that we might be transformed into his image. So suffering comes for our good, 
But it's not always a consequence of a specific action like it was for Jonah. I want to say that because some of you may be suffering right now. And I don't want you to leave here thinking, well, I did this, so God did this. That may not be the case. But when you realize what the purpose of your suffering is, you're able to respond like Paul, and I consider it all joy. Because I know this is working out for my good. And so for Community Church, we, we exist to make much of God in our neighborhoods and to the nations. How? By reflecting Jesus Christ. In order to reflect Jesus Christ, we've got to look like Him. We exist to glorify God. And so He's going to shape us. He's going to mold us from the unrepentant sinners that we once were to the redeemed children of God that we were created to be. And that is a process. And suffering is one of the ways in which God shapes our heart. It is important for us to remember that when that happens, God is sovereign. He is in control. And that He graciously and mercifully determines to draw us to Himself whatever the cost may be. And we know that his word says he is working all things out for our good and for his glory. And so we can rejoice when these things come our way. So if you're living in chaos right now, if you're experiencing a form of suffering in this life, it could be because of unrepentant sin. You could be like Jonah. I don't have to tell you that because the Holy Spirit's already been telling you. I don't need to reveal that to you. You're just like Jonah. You haven't been listening. Instead, you've been hiding underneath the ship, sleeping, acting as though nothing's wrong, going through the motions possibly of even coming here on a Sunday morning and spending time with other brothers and sisters and telling them everything's going according to plan, that you're good. But you're not looking God in the eyes because you know if you do that, things are going to be exposed. You don't want to have to deal with that right now. The chaos in your life, the waves that keep crashing down over you are a message from God to wake up. Return to Him. And you will not find judgment. You will not find condemnation. You will find grace and mercy and forgiveness. If you're going through suffering, it could just be God's determination to make you more like His Son, Jesus, because He loves you. You may be filling up the afflictions of Christ by suffering so that others have a tangible example of what Christ went through, although a shadow, but something that they can see. Either way, God is sovereign in those circumstances, and He is pursuing you so that He might display His mercy. third thing we see about God in verses 5 through 7 is that God is our only hope when all seems hopeless. God is our only hope when all seems hopeless. I want you to see the hopelessness here in verses 5 through 7. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because I think you can see this pretty clearly. Jonah speaks here of the hopelessness that he felt that he was sinking deeper and deeper into the sea. Look at the imagery here. The water closed in over him to take his life. He's facing death. This was the end for him. The vast sea, the deepness of it surrounded him. He is entangled in seaweeds as they wrap around his head. He is at the very root of the mountains. That's how deep he's trying to explain to God, this is where I was. I was in complete desperation. There was no hope for me. 
Wherever I looked, there was nothing for me. Only thing that I saw was these, these bars that are going to permanently entrap me into this watery grave. Can you identify with that feeling of hopelessness? You see a contrasting conjunction right after that. It's a beautiful word. For us, it's perfectly placed in the text. For Jonah, it was perfectly timed in the sea. He says, yet. You brought up my life. From the pit. Jonah said in verse 7 that when his life was fainting away, he remembered the Lord. And he cried out to him, and his prayer came to him in his holy temple, which is an Old Testament way of saying, into his presence. Not overly complex here. If you feel hopeless, remember the Lord. He is good. And lift your prayers to Him because He is our only hope. Instead of turning to other things or other people who will fill you with a false sense of hope, sometimes God, He lets us feel our hopelessness so that He can be the one that shows us, I am the one who provides you the hope. So we can understand who He is more clearly even up to the very moment when we are sinking deeper and deeper with no help in sight, feeling trapped, about to give in, God is there with us. Remember who He is and be filled with hope. The last thing we see about God is that God's steadfast love endures forever. Verses 8 through 9. God's steadfast love endures forever. This is something that we see throughout the whole Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. Jonah 2, verse 8, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I want to say I was researching this, and the steadfastness of God's love is mentioned 196 times in the Old Testament, and over 120 of those occur in the Psalms. This is something that we would be good to remember, that God's steadfast love endures forever. Though Jonah's faithfulness to God as a prophet wavered, God's love for him and for Nineveh did not. His love was steadfast. It was firmly established. And he is the only provider of this type of love. Jonah declares that everything else that man follows is a vain pursuit. Hear me, couples. You're not going to find steadfast love in your husband or your wife. As much as they love you. Only God can provide that. Those of you who are dating, or those of you who desire a companion, only God can provide you with steadfast love, unwavering love. As a husband, I strive to do so. As I am continually being transformed, but I am imperfect. I am not there yet. I would hate for my wife to look at me for this, for this steadfast love that never wavers. Because her life would be like this, a roller coaster. So to worship anything less than God would be to forsake the hope that we have in God's steadfast love. And look how this prayer concludes. I love this. What a transformation, right? You've got fleeing to calling out in hopelessness and desperation to thanksgiving and sacrifice. Um, I was sharing with our team this morning, our worship team, I, I've been struggling with this because I know what happens in chapter 3 and 4, 
So chapter 2 seems like, man, it's this beautiful story of redemption. But I think what this is, is you've got a child of God who has been deliberately disobedient, and God is mercifully pursuing him so that he might display that same mercy to a group of people who need to hear the gospel, who need to hear that good news that God, Yahweh, is calling them to himself. And he just is continuing on in sanctification process. He's still immature, as we see later on in this letter or this book. So I don't want us to think like, oh, this isn't true repentance. I do think something is happening here as Jonah is in the sea, as he's learning more about who God is. He's not just merely having a head knowledge, but now he's experiencing the goodness of the Lord. And he says, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. And the final words provide for us the key statement in the entire book of Jonah, possibly the entire Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Oh, that we would believe that. Instead of tirelessly working ourselves to try to earn His affection. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you're running from God because of the shame and guilt that comes from disobedience, it's because you don't understand grace, friend. You you have an incomplete understanding of what grace is. This book was written to point you to Jesus. Remember when I said that God is sovereign and that He graciously and mercifully determines to draw us to Himself whatever the cost may be? I'm not just talking about the cost to us, but also taking into consideration even more so the cost to Him. That's the extent that God goes to pursue you and me. At the cost of His Son. Our Father sacrificed His Son so that He might gain many sons and daughters. Jesus has already provided you with sufficient grace to cover your shame and your guilt. Return to the Lord. Stop running from Him. Because He's good. And His steadfast love endures forever, regardless of what you do. If you're suffering right now because of your disobedience, cry out to Him in your distress. Break the silence between you and Him. And call out to Him for salvation. If you're experiencing chaos right now because of unrepentant sin, hear the call of the Lord and wake up. Because He's calling you back to Himself. If you're suffering right now unrelated to sin, take heart, brother and sister. Trust in the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. He is working all things out for your good and He is pursuing you even in your suffering so that He might display His mercy to you. And this display of mercy has a reason. It is so that you might also display mercy to others just as Jonah was called by God and extended mercy so that he might extend mercy to the city of Nineveh. When all seems hopeless, God is with you to provide you with hope And if you have not trusted in the work of Christ for salvation, understand that there is no other hope and no other love that compares to what God provides. Perhaps you need to be woken up as well. Perhaps you, like Jonah, need God to reveal to you the burden that you must bear for your disobedience unless you trust in what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Ask God to give you the faith to believe because only He can do that. Salvation belongs to Him, not to man. Christians, I'll close with these final words. As we transition now into a time of response and singing songs of praise to this God that we've learned about today. The God who does not abandon His children in distress. The God who sovereignly pursues His children so that He might display mercy. The God who provides hope 
and our hopelessness and the God. What was my last point? Whose steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136, very similar to a song we sang this morning where we have a call and a response. Psalm 136 is very much so. If it's repeated, it's worth paying attention to, and you're going to get tired of me repeating something. But all of Scripture is profitable. It is good for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And I think we're going to see something repeated over and over and over again because we need to hear it and see it. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who by understanding made the heavens, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who spread out the earth above the waters, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who made the great lights, for His steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for His steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for His steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for His steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who divided the Red Sea in two, for His steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. For his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now as we reflect on what we have seen about your character, who you are, we give thanks to you for your steadfast love endures forever. God, as we consider what we just read, how you have continuously and consistently loved the nation of Israel, and as we see the different things that you did to display that love for them, I can't help but think about how they still were disobedient and how they still turned away from you. But God, you mercifully pursued them. You did not let them go. But you continued to send man, to send your word spoken by prophets to call them back to yourself. And you do so not because of the condition of man, but because of who you are.
thank you for your grace and your mercy. For some of us, God, we need you to wake us up to the reality of our sin and to the measure of your grace. Father, we plead with you to grant faith and repentance. That we may believe the good news that you you want us, that you are pursuing us, that you have paid the price to buy us back. Father, some of us need to be reminded of your grace. Some of us are running in shame and in guilt. And we've forgotten that your son Jesus paid the price for, the, for our sin. Would you give us the courage to turn back to you, to break the silence? Some of us have ignored you for a while, God. And you have been tearing us apart. Not out of anger, not out of wrath, but because you love us. And so that you may build us back up. And it's only because of the steadfast love that you have for us. Forgive us for our disobedience and our unfaithfulness. And Father, please do not cease to call us back to yourself and restore the joy of our salvation. Father, some of us are experiencing your grace and mercy in the form of suffering so that we might know you better. Let us cry out with voices of thanksgiving, bringing you praise for you are good And your steadfast love endures forever. We worship you right now, Father, for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.